My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Samira Kanji and Aziza Kanji. Many non-religious, progressive, and radical folks in North America have trouble wrapping their heads around the grounding in faith that is crucial to many who work for social justice. And to the extent that this is understood, it often goes as far as a nod to strands of Christianity like the social gospel and liberation theology, and no further. The ways in which, for many people, Islam is an incredible resource for understanding and acting in the world that calls for and guides towards social justice is often completely off the radar. Samira and Aziza Kanji are a mother and daughter who are part of Toronto's Noor Cultural Centre, a place of Islamic worship and education. Samira is the centre's president and CEO, and Aziza works with both her mother and her sister to organize the programming at the centre. A key element to the centre's work is a concern for social justice along multiple axes grounded in Islamic teachings and ethics. Samira and Aziza talk with me about the critical education work they do with the congregation and beyond around questions as diverse as animal rights, poverty, and much more, about the ways that their vision of justice is integrated into worship at the center, and about their work against Islamophobia in local, national, and global contexts. Particularly timely is their role in organizing a recent public statement calling for an end to the, quote, callous devaluation of Palestinian life communicated by Canadian political leaders, end quote, and signed by hundreds of academics and cultural luminaries from many places, institutions, disciplines, faiths, and communities across the country. I spoke with them by Skype to phone from Toronto. I'm Samira Kanji, and I function as the president and CEO of Noor Cultural Center, which self-describes as an Islamic center or a Muslim center that has as its primary purposes to be a place of Islamic worship, a place for education about Islam and Muslim societies, and a place that showcases and celebrates the diversity of Islamic cultures. I'm Aziza Kanji. I'm a recent graduate of University of Toronto's Faculty of Law and a Master of Laws candidate at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. And my sister and I, along with our mom, organized the programming at NOR, lectures, panel discussions, film screening, particularly exploring the application of an Islamic framework of ethics to current problems of social justice that we face today. The center was founded by my late father, Dr. Hassan Ali Lakani. It was the uh, culmination of a long-held vision and dream for a place in Canada, which he'd emigrated to in 1988 and admired so deeply. The idea was to create an Islamic center that would reflect those qualities or values of Islam that he held so dear. 
Amongst them, the shared authority between male and female in sacred worship or equal access to religious spaces, something that is not as paramount in a lot of Islamic contexts as he saw that it needed to be. And also being a place which was so diverse as Canada is, an ideal place that he could help promote understanding of Islam for Muslims, for non-Muslims, create a space, a hub that will be welcoming to all to show inclusiveness and respect, the respect that he felt was profoundly enjoined by Islamic teachings. The Quranic verse that we have chosen to underpin our mission and vision is from chapter 49 of the Quran and it's verse 13 and it reads in translation as, O humankind, we have created you out of male and female and made you into nations and tribes in order that you might come to know one another. And the best of you amongst in God's sight is the one who is most conscious of God. God is all-knowing, all-aware. And that we read to be a very strong injunction or teaching to tell us that our diversity in all its hues and types is purposeful, that God intends that we should recognize that we are all created in the same way. We're all made out of male and female and that all the diversity that is manifest on earth amongst humankind is purposeful and that there is something for us to learn from it. And then, of course, that part which says that the best of you in God's sight is the one who is most conscious of God tells us that it's not what you profess as your religious belief or as your tribal group, but it's what you do, how you behave, how you follow God's teachings for a just society. And this verse really underpins our vision of social justice at Noor Cultural Center because it speaks to the irrelevance from an Islamic perspective of biological systems of superiority of hierarchies such as gender or hierarchies of nations and tribes and really situates worthiness as being a product of God consciousness and engagement in good deeds. And so this is really the fundamental idea that underpins our commitment to social justice, that these biological differences between humans do not provide grounds for advantage or privilege in society. And so the Islamic framework is really a framework as well as an impetus for reorienting our society from being organized around these biological hierarchies to systems which are really based on merit. Give me an overview of the ways in which this vision translates into programming and into on-the-ground work with respect to social justice. Just talking about our way of functioning using our philosophy or our guiding principle of the Quranic verse that I mentioned earlier, one of the things that I mentioned was that that verse tells us that supremacy or superiority is not accorded on the basis of what is professed, but on the basis of what is done. And the fact that whatever nations or tribes, whatever our diversities are, we cannot assume that those accord any special privilege or assumption of knowledge, superiority in terms of intellect, capacity to know, and choices. And so the very strong part of our approach to everything is rooted in the belief that we have to be humble because as human beings we are constrained 
limited in what we are capable of knowing, what we are capable of understanding. And that humility obliges us to be respectful towards other ways of interpreting, other interpretations, including interpretations of other religious traditions. And so very important in our way of doing things is showing respect and inclusion to peoples of different backgrounds in what we do at NUR. One of the things we do, for example, which I think is somewhat radical, is that we incorporate in our congregational Friday prayer service on a regular basis presentations from people who represent different faith traditions. And so they get to do what we call a pre-sermon. They do a 10-minute presentation, 10 minutes out of an entire service lasting 30 minutes, but a 10-minute presentation talking about something, you know, something on ethics or beliefs from their faith tradition. And then we follow it up with the official sermon by whoever happens to be our sermon giver, our khatib for the day, finding similarities, maybe pointing out differences, but always showing respect for that tradition as a way of looking at things. If I might add another example, Scott, we've just emerged from the month of Ramadan, which for your viewers who may not be familiar with that, it's the month where Muslims abstain from food and drink from sunrise to sunset. And Ramadan, in addition to the spiritual benefits of it, is meant to be a time for reflection on poverty and questions of social justice. And so in our sermons during our Friday prayers during Ramadan, we have focused on the question of poverty, but addressing poverty not as a question of charity as it's so often framed, but as a question of justice. And for us, from an Islamic perspective, poverty really is a question of justice and not a matter of charity because the Quran and the prophetic tradition are very clear that any wealth that is granted to us is not a matter of our individual accomplishment or genius or, or prowess. It is a matter of us being graced with this wealth by God and its provision is really considered a test to see if we treat our wealth as something that is ours to be hoarded or rather as something that we have an onus to distribute more justly. And so when we reframe the issue of poverty and addressing poverty as a question of justice rather than a question of charity, it helps to address many of these problematic tendencies in the way we think about poverty that as people who are perhaps in a position of wealth, we're being generous when we give to the poor. And when we give to the poor, it's really a way of reinforcing our own position of privilege by positioning ourselves as benevolent givers rather than as people entrusted with a benefit that we're not really entitled to hoard for ourselves. And so that, again, is another example of how even in these very fundamental spiritual activities of the center, our Jummah prayers, we use those as opportunities to talk about issues of social justice and perhaps also reframe the way that people think about things. That's the biggest thing, is educating people introducing these notions which many people haven't entertained before. And then, of course, we have programs that talk about social justice issues. We have lectures. You know, we did something, for example, on International Women's Day. We had a lecture with a film screening showing self-help projects. In, in it's, it's a film called Solar Mamas. It's about the Barefoot College 
in India, which was established to bring women from developing villages all over the world to train them to become solar engineers. And so it's simultaneously a project which seeks to achieve sustainable development by introducing solar power to villages which otherwise didn't have access to electricity, as well as a way of educating women and elevating their position in their societies. And it's all done in the Global South. It's not a development project in which the Global North teaches the Global South how to develop itself. It's really about forming links between women's and all of these different South communities. People's attitudes, if we consider them oppressive, they're not that way because people are mean or greedy. But a lot of it is purely due to ignorance of how things actually operate in the world today, you know, under globalization, mass production of food, consumption of energy, all these unsustainable practices that are practiced in our capitalist consumerist culture, which go to hurt not only particularly vulnerable and poor communities around the world, the developing countries, but also ultimately affect us because we're all in the same boat. So education is a huge part of it. You know, we have series that talk about it. For example, a while ago, we went through chapter by chapter of the book, uh, The Story of Stuff by Annie Leonard, where she goes through the life cycle of a good that we may end up consuming here, you know, from the time that it is mined from the ground to the time it's shipped somewhere and then produced and added value to it and then ultimately ends up in a landfill somewhere creating further devastation and depredation of environment. Those kinds of things are hugely important because, for the most part, we are blissfully unaware. There are deeper structures that we are mostly unaware of, which are fundamental in uh, shaping the reality that we live in. So those of us who have the money to spend and to enjoy these goods can very often be totally ignorant of how our benefit comes at the expense of what has to be termed exploitation of people who are powerless and therefore forced to work at so-called market rates. You know, the prices get pushed down. Walmart wants to sell a good at $5 when somebody else is selling at 6 and the pressure ends up being on the producers, the manual laborers who produce that good. Our system is based on inequalities, and, and it doesn't need to be a zero-sum game, but very often that's the way it plays out, that we benefit, we get more, and we get cheaper, but somebody else is getting less and paying the real price of it, the externalities of a lot of the things we consume. A good example of the translation of our broad philosophical framework into concrete questions of justice is our recent series that we hosted, Rethinking the Human-Non-Human Animal Relationship Based on an Islamic Ethics. This series was devoted to re-examining the assumption that theological arguments, as well as philosophical arguments, biological arguments, support the maintenance of a radical separation and hierarchy between human and non-human animals. We brought in a scholar of the Quran, Dr. Sara Talili from University of South Florida, and she is the author of a recent book entitled Animals in the Quran. And this is really a radical rethinking of the argument that from an Islamic perspective, humans are granted a special and elevated place in the scheme of creation and that they alone exercise moral agency, for example, 
than that their entitlement to extracting resources from nature and extracting sustenance from nature, for example, are allocated superior priority in an Islamic framework. And so by reorienting our vision of the human-non-human animal relationship to one rooted in a paradigm in which God alone is supreme and that the created differences between human and non-human animals do not entitle humans to a priority in the scheme of nature, this really enables us to start rethinking the way that we relate to non-human animals and to reframe questions of cruelty to animals or the ways in which we deprive non-human animals of the ability to exercise their natures or their ability to derive sustenance from nature, it reorients these into questions of justice from an Islamic perspective, which really enables us to fundamentally rethink our current paradigms of, of anthropocentricism, which enable us to treat animals so cruelly in systems of food production, for example. So I would imagine that one of the things that the center as an organization and all of the people who participate in it have had to wrestle with is the quite significant levels of hostility towards Islam that appears in mainstream Canadian society, in the media, from the Canadian state. What are some of the things that the center has done to respond to navigate that hostility that's all too common in Canadian society? In our personal capacities, we've been quite active in formulating media interventions, for example, to respond to overtly Islamophobic discourses, both at the level of the state as well as at the level of mainstream media. Because the way that Islam is talked about in a broader framework is so problematic and it's racist and it draws on earlier Orientalist ideas about the exceptionality and the fundamental difference of Muslims. And so we, as a Canadian Muslim center, which is often portrayed as being exceptional because we're thought of as perhaps being progressive when it comes to gender, and so people tend to think of us as a good Muslim center or a moderate Muslim center, which isn't like those other bad Muslims with their beards and their honor killings. As a center which is often thought of to be exceptional, we reject that label of exceptionality and we try to use our position to change the discourse around Muslims and to subvert and counter the stereotypes that exist about Muslims in many different domains when it comes to gender relations, for example, or when it comes to the supposed terrorist threats that Muslims pose to Canadian society as well as globally. For example, we produced a report entitled Muslims and Multiculturalism, which goes through several different tropes or myths which are used to portray Muslims as a community in Canada which cannot be incorporated in our multicultural framework. Myths, for example, that Muslim communities are uniquely prone to gendered violence, myths that Muslims are responsible for the predominance of terrorism in North America and worldwide, myths that Muslims don't adopt Canadian values and that they seek to take over the state and implement Sharia. In this report, we go through all of these myths that are used to exclude Muslims from belonging in the Canadian political community, and we address them using empirical evidence, studies that have been done on terrorism radicalization, for example, or studies that have been done on gendered and domestic violence in Canada. So this is a very fundamental part of what we do at NOR. And of course, we're not the only people engaged in this important work. We have many Muslim and non-Muslim partners in this work. 
tell me a little bit more about some of these collaborations responding to Islamophobia. I can give an example that we've been working on right now. And this isn't about domestic Islamophobia. This is really about the international context of Islamophobia in the way that the current violence in Gaza has been represented and positioned in mainstream Canadian political discourse. There's been a great deal of dissatisfaction, I think, across many communities with the utter devaluation of Palestinian life that has been communicated not only by the conservative government, but also by the Liberal Party, the NDP. And now there are also reports of a statement made by the president of the Green Party, which is extremely problematic. For us, this utter devaluation of Palestinian life, which completely fails to acknowledge the ways in which Palestinian life for decades has been made untenable under the system of blockades imposed by Israel and is now being existentially threatened by the assault on Gaza. There's been no recognition of this from our Canadian political parties engendering a great deal of not only dismay but consternation and absolute appalment by not only Muslims but non-Muslims across all Canadian communities. And so what we've been working on right now is a joint letter from academics, lawyers, and community leaders calling the government and the federal political parties to account for their statements and positions on what's happening in Gaza right now. And in that, we've received support not only from the Muslim community, but from academics from all different communities and from community organizations rooted in different religious traditions. It was published in the Globe and Mail as signed by 480 academics, lawyers, and community leaders. But due to demand, we have reopened the signatories list, and the list as well as the letter is posted on canadiansforgasms.com, where the letter will be updated to reflect current casualty figures and the findings of human rights organizations. So it has been publicized, and that was going to be the end of it. But due to the outrage and disgust across Canadian communities regarding our government and federal parties' one-sided and biased positions on this, we're expanding the initiative and taking more signatures. So that has really been a hardening example to us regarding how concerned so many people are about this radical and unbalanced swing in our Canadian political discourse in which rampant Islamophobia translates into an utter devaluation of an Arab population which is being massacred in Gaza right now. One of the things I've been discussing with one of my interfaith dialogues in the Jewish community pointing out to her that it is wrong to term the Israel-Palestine conflict as one of religious intolerance, which many people shockingly do in spite of the very obvious reality that this is a territorial and political dispute because it's self-serving. You know, it's easy to say it's Muslims being intolerant and I had to remind her that it's a struggle between Israel and Palestine and Palestinians who are Christian and Muslim majority Muslim, but it's not a religious conflict. So there's lots of these conflations and subversions, uh, misrepresentations in order just to be self-serving for whoever is doing this, you know, to put down, to devalue, to be racist, to be unjust. And what we endeavor to do is, well, engage with whoever is making those representations and point out, argue with them. I think it's also important to remember that we talk about Islamophobia, but it's not only Muslims who have been affected by Islamophobia. In both Canada and the United States, Muslim-looking people, including Sikhs, Hindus, South Asians of different religious traditions, and Arabs of different religious traditions, have also been targeted 
by violence, which is intended to be directed towards Muslims, but really ends up being targeted against people who bear the signs of a stereotyped and racialized Muslim identity, turbans and beards, for example, and and brown skin. And so it really behooves us to make these kinds of connections between communities that have been similarly affected by Islamophobia as well as between communities affected by Islamophobia and communities affected by other forms of racialized violence, both at the state level and the media level, such as the indigenous community, for example, or those who are being demonized in current racialized discourses around quote-unquote illegal immigration. This isn't work that we do so much explicitly through NOR, but in my personal capacity in the writings that I do, for example, I try to make connections between the way that the national security surveillance state targets racialized groups such as Muslims and indigenous people, as well as environmental groups, and how all of these groups become targets of the national security state. But when the panopticon of the state is directed against racialized groups such as Muslims and indigenous, it doesn't arouse the same kind of response and opposition as when it's environmental groups, for example, that are being targeted. And so in my personal work, I try to elucidate the ways in which these oppressive state practices are racialized and to draw the connections between the ways that different groups are racialized and then included within the ambit of these extremely problematic practices. But it's not work that we really do explicitly through NUR. What we have done at NUR is, what was that film series we did? Oh, we did a series on uh, critiquing multicultural discourse in Canada and the uneven plane of citizenship and belonging how that plane is contoured by hierarchies such as race. And in that, we included voices from a variety of different communities. And it was very important for us to have an Indigenous voice there because I think as immigrants, we often don't engage enough with Indigenous perspectives. Often, immigrant communities are so happy to be in Canada and they really seek to integrate into what is perceived from afar, if not necessarily from a close as the multicultural haven of Canada without thinking about how discourses of multiculturalism, for example, may end up disenfranchising and contributing to the dispossession of indigenous communities who then often become framed as just one more multicultural community among many rather than as a nation with pre-existing sovereignty on this land and pre-existing rights to sustenance and self-governance. And so our engagement with other racialized communities is not simply about forming coalitions, but also about fomenting a more critical perspective in the Muslim community about how we think about the claims that we're making with respect to the state. You have been listening to my interview with Samira Kanji and Aziza Kanji of the Newer Cultural Center in Toronto. To learn more about the center, go to newerculturalcenter.ca And to learn more about the recent statement they were involved in coordinating calling for a condemnation of violations of international law in Gaza, go to canadiansnumeral4gazans.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Prince, 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 Phil.